Never think that you are bugging me or bugging Pastor Bud or, or bugging anybody here at the church by reaching out with your needs. It's what we've given our lives to do. Uh, we want to be there for you. We want to pray for you. And if you're going through a particularly hard time, know this. You are not alone. This has been hard on everybody. Uh, there's nobody I've talked to, whether from our church or even just out on the streets or whatever, who are just having a dandy old time with, you know, a quarantine 2.0 and the fifth or sixth month of coronavirus, whatever this is now. I mean, this is mentally and emotionally and psychologically taxing. Uh, it's okay to admit that. And it's also okay to recognize that, uh, you know, th this, this isn't going away anytime soon, you know. We thought in the beginning, you know, 15 days of a national quarantine and, and this would just kind of lift. And I think we're realizing now uh, this thing, uh, until God lifts it, uh, you know, and until it runs the course it's supposed to run, it's here. And we want to encourage you and let you know that we are here. We're here to pray away the fear because I know there's a lot of fear out there. Anxiety and depression. We want to pray for you for that. And by the way, don't ever think that we will think that not that you may care what we think, but that, you, that we would think anything less of you if you are struggling with some anxiety and depression, if you are struggling with a little bit of the summertime blues uh, because we're shut in, so to speak, if you are struggling with fear or worry, uh, you know, some of those are very natural reactions, natural reactions to a pandemic. But thank God we have a supernatural God who can take what we feel in the natural, place his supernatural love and healing. And what does the Bible say? He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so if you want some of that power, if you want some of that love, if you want some of that sound mind, self-discipline, I'm going to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, for all of us, and I'll include myself, who may be struggling with some anxiety or depression, some just kind of being bummed out in life, some fear, uh, a fear of the future, too. Uh, it, it just, more than ever, I've heard people say the future just seems even more uncertain than it ever has in my entire, entire life. But God, we know who holds the future. We know who we are resting in the palm of your hands. And so, God, I pray right now, for a breaking against the spirit of fear and for a release of fresh faith, fresh power, fresh love, and a, and a sound mind and self-discipline. God, that today we would choose the Holy Spirit over fear, anxiety, or the flesh. You've given us the power to choose it. And as we're going to learn in this message, we have the power. We can choose fear and go down that road. Or we can choose the Holy Spirit. That's not faking it. It's choosing it. Despite how we may feel. Or despite what our circumstances is. Let us choose it. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Like I said. We are in our fourth message. In our series Gospel Women. And the, the title today is. The I am guilty as charged woman. And we're going to be talking about. The woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8. But I want to open up with an interesting story. And this is one of the hardest stories for me to tell and to hear. And I'll tell you why for a second. 
Billy Graham, uh, back in the day, he drove across the United States uh, way early on in his ministry. He was gaining national fame, but he took his old, old car and he was driving across the United States doing these various meetings in churches and in uh, uh, you know, different places, tent revivals and all that. Well, one time he was driving and he was caught speeding. And so the cop pulled him over and said, you know, you were speeding and I guess he was really speeding. And so they said, I'm going to give you a ticket. And, and Billy Graham said, I, I, can't, I can't come back for this ticket. I can't, you know, I, I, need, I need to get going. I'm, I'm on to meetings and church meetings and stuff like that. So the, this was back in the old days where the police officer said, well, we'll just go to the courthouse right now. We'll take you to the judge right now. So they, they <laughs> as embarrassing as it was, him and the police officer, they drove to the courthouse. And here is Billy Graham. The great Billy Graham sitting in court fighting a speeding ticket. Oh, that almost makes me feel so good. That if, that's something that he struggled with because I have one or two in my lifetime as well. And so Billy Graham is sitting in front of the judge and he begins to talk about how he's doing all of this ministry, going to all these churches. And the judge looks up and he says, Billy Graham? Yes, sir. Billy Graham? Yes, sir. And the judge looks and says, well, you got a speeding ticket. And Billy Graham said, I don't deny it. I probably was speeding. I'm in a hurry. And the judge said, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to cancel your ticket, but I'm going to pay it for you. And I'm going to take you out for a steak dinner tonight. Now, you may say, Tom, why is that? That's a great story. That's a, that's a picture of how God treats us, you know? We have a ticket, and God has said, I'm going to pay for that ticket. I'm going to pay for those sins. I'm going to take the punishment of all those sins on me, and then when we die and we're at the wedding supper with the Lamb, he's going to give us dinner. This is, this is exactly, this is a portrayal of Christianity happening in Billy Graham's life. You may say, well, why is that such a hard story for you to say? Because it's never happened to me. <laughs> I've never had a police officer say or a judge say, you know, Tom Nackey, you just seem like such a nice guy. We're going to forgive your ticket. No. And by the way, the tickets now are not $10. Uh, add, you know, times that by like five, no, five, five fifty. And that's about what the, don't ask me how I know how much a ticket costs, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> I am here to tell you that has never happened to me, but... That story is a great example of what God does. We come, guilty as charged. And I love that Billy Graham said, I, I, I'm guilty as charged. And the judge said, you know what? Fair enough. I'm going to pay the ticket for you. If you want a definition of the grace of God, that's what it is right there. If you turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11, we're going to read a biblical version of the opening story I just told you. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, and then ending in verse 11. Give you a minute to get there. All right. Verse 2. Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. This is not Jesus' last week. Uh, he's in Jerusalem, but this isn't one of those, this isn't the last week Jerusalem. Uh, this is still earlier, it's still Christmas Jesus. 
And uh, he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and the Bible says, in the very act. Why that's important, I'll tell you, is this. In order for someone to be prosecuted for a crime, someone had to be an eyewitness to it. It wasn't enough to just see, you know, a man or a woman walking into a home. You had to catch them in the very act. And so that's part of the reason why that's in there is to let you know this woman is guilty. There are eyewitnesses, maybe more than one, who can establish the truth of this. And so, you know, John is not saying for a moment here that there's any doubt or speculation as to the woman's guilt. And, of course, the man she was with. So they brought, uh, it says, um, excuse me, when they had set her in Jesus' midst, uh, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act, and now Moses commanded us that such a woman should be stoned. That means condemned to death. They said, But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Uh, Sometimes when you're getting snarky with Jesus, (laughs) he begins to, you know, it's as though he did not hear. You can kind of feel that for a moment. He's almost like giving them a little time. Do you really want to go down this road? Are you really trying to find something to prosecute me on? I I love the fact that Jesus doesn't answer right away. He gives them a little time to let the scheme rest in to see if they still want to go down this road. And he begins to write on the ground with his finger. What he wrote, we do not know. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, they continued. Jesus kind of ignored them at first. Now they're continuing to ask him. He raised himself up and he said to him, fine. But he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone. And in verse 8, again it says, he stooped down and began to write on the ground more. Verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in his midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers? of yours has no one condemned you and she said no one lord and jesus said to her then neither do i condemn you go and sin no more now the context of this story is in the middle of a feast a jewish feast called the feast of tabernacles Uh, that in and of itself doesn't bear too much in the story other than the fact that people from all over israel would come to jerusalem for this feast Uh, And so they're they're having the Feast of Tabernacles. That means there's a lot of people in the city and the Jewish leaders kind of pick this time where they're going to try to put Jesus on the spot in front of a big crowd. Remember, they are trying to destroy his credibility. Uh, They are trying to trump up some charges on him. And so as Jesus is standing there teaching, he is suddenly and rudely interrupted by a crowd of men surrounding an embarrassed woman now note to all when you have to be rude to get your point across 
your heart probably is not in the right place and God is probably not in it. When you have to be rude to get your point across, it's, it's probably not the right thing. These supposed pious, righteous, religious men really humiliate this woman and they interrupt Jesus' teaching and they're putting him on the spot in front of a huge crowd of people. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Huge crowd of people. And they have all of this go down because they want a lot of witnesses to hear because they want Jesus to either defy Rome or defy Moses. Either way is going to make Jesus look bad. Now these are Jewish teachers of the law or Pharisees. Everybody sort of sought these men out for their Bible questions. They were seminary educated. They were well known reputed to be men of high moral standards the problem is they are filled with pride and they can't stand jesus they're filled with pride and they can't stand jesus they're sort of arrogant and self-confident thoroughly hypocritical but they're also too spiritually blind to deal with their own hardness of heart so they present jesus with a big dilemma and the dilemma is this if jesus condemns the woman to death like the law of Moses says, then he gets in trouble with Rome because Rome did not allow capital punishment and Jesus would be inciting something that was contrary to Roman law. If he doesn't condemn her, then he seems to be at odds with Moses who commanded in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 that such an act be is punishable by stoning. Adultery was taken very seriously. And so, you know, he, he has a, there's a real dilemma here, but remember, the whole incident is about trying to maintain a prosecutable accusation against Jesus. No background is given about the woman. She is simply and forever will be called the woman. Where is the man? Unknown. But, but, according to the law of Moses in Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22, both parties to adultery should have been stoned. You don't just stone one person. You don't just stone the woman. You don't just stone the man. It's both of them are culpable in the punishment. So Jesus' answer is absolutely brilliant. When he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, he doesn't violate the law of Moses. He says, go ahead and cast the first stone. And he also doesn't, place the burden of Roman law on him. It's saying, you know what? If you want to do it, you do it. You get in trouble with Rome. It's actually one of the most brilliant answers and the most brilliant answer that Jesus could have given. But there's another reason why Jesus says this. Remember when I was talking about eyewitnesses? In the law of Moses, when they were going to stone somebody, there needed to be two eyewitnesses. The first eyewitness cast the first stone the second eyewitness was to cast the second stone and then everybody else would join in and by the way these weren't little skipping stones these were boulders about the size of a softball is how they would do it so in other words they the reason they did this in, in deuteronomy 19 says that witnesses must not testify falsely or from malicious intent because if they did the punishment that would have went to the victim would have went on them. So essentially, uh, you know, if they testified deceitfully, 
they are signing their own death warrant according to the law of Moses. And so one by one, and here's the thing, the fact that they began to drop stones makes me wonder whether anybody saw her at all. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible's pretty clear, their conscience uh, gets convicted, and one by one, they began to disappear. Why? Because they knew that they were all guilty. But here is, in a nutshell, you've heard all this, in a nutshell, here is what this story means. The woman doesn't deny her sin. And the men don't admit they have any. This is what Jesus, remember, Jesus is like Superman. You know, he, he sees it right into our hearts and understands exactly what's going on. He looks into the woman's heart. She's not denying a thing. She's saying, Jesus, guilty as charge. Just like when the judge said, Billy Graham said, judge, guilty as charge. The woman, by looking, just probably one look, didn't defend herself, did, guilty as charged. She doesn't deny her sin, and they don't admit they have any until Jesus pulls the blinders off and challenges them. And so after they leave, she's left all alone. And you may ask, why did Jesus let her go? Was he just a nice guy? Well, it was more than that. We got to remember, first of all, it's not that Jesus doesn't consider sexual sin no big deal. Sexual sin is a big, big deal to Jesus. And her sexual sin was a big, big deal to Jesus. He is not saying in any moment, oh, this is no big deal. Why are you bringing this to me? We might say that today in our 21st century context because it's so rampant in our country and our society. We think of it as no big deal. Harmful play, it's no big deal. It was a huge deal to Jesus. Let me tell you why. In John chapter 3, verse 17, says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And how did Jesus save the world? By dying on the cross. No, her sexual sin was a big deal. It was such a big deal that Jesus and only Jesus could die on that cross to forgive her of that sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just got four points for us, and then we're going to close with one more song and hopefully be encouraged for this week and stand strong in faith no matter what comes against us. We have the forgiver of sins in our hearts and on our side. Who can stand against us? Who or what can stand against us? Point number one is this, out of this story. First point, I think, is pretty obvious. Hypocrites make the worst judges. Hypocrites make the worst judges. They're often too blind to deal with their own hardness of heart. The Bible describes hypocrites as, as people who are blinded to who they really are. They don't see their true standing before God. And so they qualify themselves to accuse, to attack, to criticize, to fight and get angry. But we don't often realize our own short-sightedness. We don't often realize when our heart begins to get empathy-starved, fear-prone, and self-righteous. 
Hypocrisy is something that we often don't realize. But the fact of the matter is, if you ask your friends, you're probably acting in hypocrisy far more than you realize for those who really know you. It's just hard to see. Now, don't freak out too much that I'm saying that. I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm trying to point out a reality. Just as we may struggle with anger, just as we may struggle with lust, just as we may struggle with a lot of things in the flesh and not always recognize it for what it is, we will also struggle with hypocrisy. I have yet to meet a human being that hasn't had moments or seasons or decades in hypocrisy. And hypocrites make the worst judges. That's why I always go by my saying, I'm not qualified to be your judge because I I may go down a path of hypocrisy I don't want to go down. Now, the Bible's qualified to be our judge, and I'll judge through that, but not necessarily of my own uh, uh, of my own heart or my own uh, judgments in my sinful nature. Our own sin often blinds us to this. And Jesus is only too happy to take the blinders off from time to time. This is why it's so good to go to God in prayer daily. And I recommend the morning. I know some people like at night, and if at night works for you, it's better than nothing. So do it whenever you're naturally going to do it. But for me, there's something about a prayer walk in the morning where it's just whatever I've been blinded to in my own hypocrisies, Jesus just has a great way of taking those off and saying, you know what, Tom, maybe you better go easy on this person because you've got some, some areas in there too that I'm dealing with. That's the exact same thing. So number one, uh, hypocrites make the worst judges. Number two, This would have been shocking to the first readers of the story. Maybe not so much for us in the 21st century, but in the first century, if one of the apostles would have preached this passage, this point would have just, it would have sent a look of shock and horror throughout the congregation. Point number two is this. All of us are the woman. All of us are the woman. That's the point. All of us, to some degree, are the Jewish leaders in hip, struggling with hypocrisy, and all of us are the woman. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. God doesn't excuse our sin. Jesus doesn't say to the men, oh, come on, you guys, it's no big deal. Oh, come on, I'm just going to let it slide. Oh, dear woman, it's not your fault. All of us are the woman. And all of us are truly guilty before a holy God. All of us are caught by God's justice. And all of us are helpless and unable to change our condition. All of us are doomed and damned unless someone comes in to help us. We can't buy our way out of our troubles. We can't deny our condition. We are born with a spiritual cancer that only Jesus can heal. The good news is, He'll heal it, and all you have to do is ask. The tough news is you have to admit that you need it in order to get it. This is what the woman was so quick to do, and the religious leaders were too blind to see. Now, too often, we want to give a justification as to why we should be allowed to have a certain sin in our life. Things like, oh, I had a bad childhood. Oh, my spouse left me. Oh, my boss fired me. 
Oh, my debts emptied me. I was raised poor. I'm not very smart. I'm not very spiritual. I'm too weak-willed. I come from an entitled generation so that anything I want, anything that feels good, anything that will make me happy, well, that should never be called a sin. Jesus says, sin is sin, no matter where it comes from. By God's grace, this woman leaves with a clean slate, a new life, and new power within. By not denying her sin, but admitting it, accepting it, and taking it to Jesus, she gets forgiven of it, and then all of a sudden the power of it is weakened and lessened as God begins to move into her heart. And we now have the power of the Holy Spirit, power to overcome our past, power to overcome our past identities. Past identities, we've all been lots of people. To overcome our past mistakes, to overcome our past abuses. All of that is probably bottled up in this woman. And in one moment, Jesus releases her from all of that past and sends her on into a hopeful future, now having the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome all that led her there in the first place. Now, as a side note, I have to say this because this story can be one of the harder stories for women to hear because a lot of women will say, you know what, Pastor Tom, what about the dude? What about the man? It seems so unfair. They bring this woman in. Now, where's the man in all this? And we may be tempted to think that the man, whoever he was, got away with his sin. But note this. He didn't get away with anything. In fact, it's the woman who walks away healed and forgiven. That's a good thing. Believe it or not, the hypocritical religious leaders, they walked away humbled. That's a good thing. But the man, the man who was in adultery, he is unchanged. His guilt is going to follow him forever. The woman met Jesus, and he transformed her life. Meanwhile, the man, whoever he is and wherever he is, is still marred in his sin. He would have been better off being exposed like this woman was and walking away freed. Point number three, grace is God's choice motivator. Grace is God's choice motivator. You ever wonder, as soon as Jesus said he was without sin, cast the first stone, you ever wonder why the woman didn't leave? I, mean, I don't know about you, but you know, as the men were leaving, if I was the woman, I might have slipped in among the men and in order to avoid any further humiliation in front of this big crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus, I probably would have slipped out myself, ran off in shame, and went, oh my goodness, what in the world just happened? But she didn't. She stayed. She stayed and stood there humiliated. Because experiencing Jesus... I think she saw a man who was different from all other men. 
a man who had treated her with grace instead of contempt. Nothing motivates us like grace. When you experience grace, you can have crowds of people around you shouting at you, criticizing you, trying to define you, trying to humble you, trying to keyhole you into their version of you. But when you experience the grace of God, all of those voices fade to nothing. All those faces fade into a blur. And the only thing that comes into focus is the grace of God, the face of Jesus, and the fact that you haven't experienced this in a long time. Maybe never. Grace instead of contempt. Someone who knew you and still forgave you. Someone you didn't have to hide from. Someone you can't hide from. Someone who will love you and love you and love you no matter how hard you try to push them away. That's Jesus. That's grace. Grace is God's choice motivator. Jesus didn't say to the woman, now sin no more and I'll keep forgiving you. I won't condemn you. No, no, no. He, Jesus said to the woman, I forgive you, and now I'm going to give you the power to go away and sin no more. See, religion says, change, or you will be condemned. Grace says, I have forgiven you. Now let me change you. Grace does for us what rules could never do. And then finally, point number four. There is more to you. Listen up. There is more to you than your sin. When I talk to a lot of people, especially being in the position of pastor, uh, they just come in and they feel like all they are is their sins. All they are is their weakness. They'll tell me, Pastor, I try to pray, but every time I do, I spend an hour confessing all of my sins, and they are many. I'm here to tell you, you are so much more than your sin. Yes, sin, you know, that two steps forward, one step back. Sin can be that one step back. But trust me, when you get the Holy Spirit in here, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. God is working in here. He's drilling out the strongholds. He's, he's uh, drilling out some of the cavities. He's extracting the cancers. He's doing all this kind of work. You may not even realize it because it's in the invisible realm, but you stick with Jesus, and day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year is going to go by. And you'll look back and you'll see God was doing the work in you because the Holy Spirit inside of you doesn't sit there and do nothing. Let me say it again. The Holy Spirit inside of you doesn't sit there and do nothing. God is in you. And he's always working, even when you're asleep. There is more to you than your sin. So if you feel any weight of sin on your heart right now, it's something I do. Once I begin to feel the weight of an area where I've blown it. I just imagine myself running and grabbing onto the cross. And you know what I hear when I do that? I hear these words. Neither do I condemn you. I have forgiven you. Now go and sin no more.
And I want to close with one more story. Many of you, especially many of us living in California, we have seen the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, it's a beautiful bridge, I must say. Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a bit of a scary bridge. Uh, it sways a lot if you've ever been on it. It has a little bit of a sway to it. And when you look down, you just realize not only high, how high you are, but how choppy the waters are beneath you. Well, when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge, they, uh, they began to uh, begin construction on it. There were workers who were falling off of the bridge, and they were falling into the uh, uh, bay there, and, and they were dying, many of them from a broken back because the, the impact of the water was lethal. And so they began to basically say, you know what, we're, we're, we're not going to... We're not going to uh, work on the bridge anymore. The workers were like, forget this. You know, too, many, too many people are dying. So one of the engineers who was building the Golden Gate Bridge, they came up with a plan. It was one of the most expensive things that they did for the bridge. But believe it or not, this is what they did. They built a gigantic net underneath the bridge. And when they finished that net... All of the workers came back and began to work again. 